You don't have to clap for me. Okay. Well, so you're the early birds, huh? That's uh, good to see you this morning. An announcement. Uh, we're trying to get the, uh, the morning prayer, weekly prayer going again. And uh, we moved it back to 7 from 6.30. Uh, we tried it on Tuesday, and uh, I think we're going to go back to Wednesday as uh, a little bit easier day to, to do it. So this week, Wednesday, 7 a.m., if you are available to join us, that would be great. We've got a lot of things to pray for. We spend about an hour together. And then uh, for those that want to, uh, we sneak out for breakfast and continue our time of uh, fellowship together. All right, that's the announcement. Okay, today we are finishing up our series on the prophet Hosea. <clears throat> Next week begins the Advent season, so we'll be focusing on some messages from the uh, Gospel of Matthew. But today I want to look at the final chapter in Hosea. We've jumped a few chapters, but uh, uh, seemed to be the right thing to do. Uh, Hosea chapter 14, and I'm going to call it the road to blessing, because for all that Hosea is a difficult book, says some very hard things that uh, we don't really like to hear, and Israel didn't want to hear them. The fact is that God said those things through his prophet hard as they were, with a purpose of not making them feel bad, but the purpose is that he might be open the doors of blessing for them once again. That's always God's purpose, that he would invite us back into his circle of fellowship and to bless his people. So let's call it the road to blessing. Follow along as I read. <clears throat> Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say to our gods, <clears throat> say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. So those are the words that Israel is to take to express their return to the Lord. And now the Lord speaks to them. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. 
Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. And now the prophet speaks. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So the lead-off to this final chapter is something that we would expect in a summary of all that we've studied before. Return to the Lord your God. Return, O Israel. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. That imagery of returning is, uh, I think, the most important theme in this book. We've seen it numerous times before. It's the image of repentance. It's the image of recognizing that we're going in the wrong direction and turning back to recover what we have lost. Return to the Lord your God. And with that, Hosea also comes back to what is the most fundamental problem that these people are having. And that is the problem of idolatry. The leaders of that northern kingdom had established the worship of the calf, both in Dan in the north, in Bethel in the south, Uh, in an effort to keep the people from returning yearly to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. These are your gods, the calf idol. And that becomes a fundamental problem for the people. So to return is to reject idolatrous worship. Now, having said that, uh, Hosea realizes, and what I want us to realize this morning is that Idolatry is much bigger than just bowing down to a a wooden statue that's been overlaid with gold. And in fact, we get some indication of that in verse 3, where after calling the people to repentance and asking God to forgive their sins, the people are to say... Verse 3, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. What our own hands have made can be that material idol that in this case is the calf idol. Or it could be the, the pillars that... Uh, were also objects of worship. But it may not be something specifically material at all, and that's why we've got a reference here to Assyria and also to the war horses. In other words, idolatry can involve anything that we trust in other than trusting in God. Remember, we talked about Luther's definition 
of uh, what a God is, small g. Luther says, your God is what you trust in. And the trust of Israel has been at times uh, to trust in Assyria, to trust in military might, to trust at times in Egypt, to try to play off Egypt against Assyria. And in the time of returning to the Lord, in the future time of blessing that Hosea foresees, they will give that all up. They will recognize it to be idolatrous. So, returning to the Lord then, repentance involves repentance from idolatry. Now, the concluding words of this book, this chapter, raises a question, who is wise? Now, I want to spend some time on that. Verse 9, who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. I don't know if you've experienced this, if you've been reading along with us in this book, but uh, the fact is that Hosea is a, a difficult book. It's, uh, it's all poetry, and we're not used to reading poetry. It references various places or various circumstances that we're not familiar with. Now, the people of that day would have had more familiarity. They'd actually have an advantage of us. But, but it sounds like, for the people of Hosea's day, this was already a tough book. And that's why there's a call here for wisdom and discernment. It it actually seems, as you study through this book, that at times Hosea was content to make what he was saying a little bit obscure. Strange as that may seem, but it appears that's what he's done. The result is that we can end up scratching our heads, saying, what is this about? How are we to understand it? And it's a hard book, not just from the standpoint of, of, say, intellectual understanding, but it's a hard book also because it's hard to hear a lot of the things that we do understand. Uh, It's cutting. It's highly critical. And the result is, uh, certainly it happened in Hosea's day, that people just put their fingers in their ears and said, we we don't want to listen to this. And most of the Old Testament prophets faced that, as did New Testament prophets. I mean, think of what happened to Jesus, right? Think of what happened to John the Baptist. People, by and large, didn't want to hear what the prophets have said. So, not Hosea, uh, his contemporary Isaiah, according to tradition, in the time of King Manasseh, ends up being sawed in half because of the hatred that came to him. Jeremiah ends up in prison 
And he's let down in an abandoned well where his feet sink in the mire because people don't want to hear what the prophets have to say. And as I listen to Hosea and try to think about his words, well, then I, I struggle with that too. There's a lot that I don't really want to hear for myself. And what happens is that when there is a, a desire in us not to hear, I've said it numerous times before, God will not crash your party. If you don't want to hear, God says, all right, I'm not going to force you to hear. And the result is that the words of the prophets then actually become words of judgment and words that obscure our understanding. We say, I don't really want this, and God says, all right, you don't don't have to receive it, and in fact, your understanding is going to be obscured. There's a word of judgment here. That's the way judgment works out. Last week, when Todd spoke from Isaiah, we saw there was a similar statement there where the Lord says, uh, who shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, well, I'll go. And God says, all right, I'll send you, but here's what you need to know. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. You get the the word of judgment in there? They don't really want to understand the words of the prophets because those, those words are challenging, calling them to change their course, to acknowledge they've been going in the wrong direction. People say, I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want that kind of criticism. That's hurtful. And the Lord says, all right, then you're going to hear, but you're never going to understand. And I think a similar thing happens with Hosea. It happened in his own day. Uh, He gave this word against idolatry, and what do they say? Well, chapter 8, oh God, we are the people who know you. What incredible misunderstanding, huh? So here's the fact. If we don't want to hear, we will not hear. So the question then, I guess, for us as we finish up with Hosea is, what do Hosea's words about idolatry and about turning from idolatry, what do those words mean to us, to you, to our church, to the church in America? Are are these just far away circumstances uh, given to people at a particular time that were actually worshiping idols, visible, crafted idols, and God is saying you've got to turn back from that. But, I mean, we don't, we don't do that, right? So does this word apply to us? So I've been thinking about that uh, a lot this week. And that's what I want to focus on here for a bit. And uh, 
And in doing so, I recognize that this may be difficult for you to hear because it's difficult for me to hear, for me to speak. But I think we need to do it. What I want to do is talk to you about the idols of power. And, uh, and I think that's in Hosea. In verse 3 of this chapter, we've got issues of idolatry. Beyond the calf idol that they worshipped, here's what they are to say when they come in repentance to the Lord. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. What was Assyria? It was the superpower of its day. At least it was one of them. Egypt probably also would fall into that category. And as we pointed out before, uh, Israel is on the, the narrow land bridge between Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south. <clears throat> and what Israel is doing under the reign of Jeroboam II is they are playing the game of geopolitical negotiation to protect themselves, to strengthen their position. And so at some point, they look to Assyria to defend them from some of the other smaller kingdoms immediately around them, and, uh, and that's what's being referred to here. Assyria cannot save us, but the Israelites are saying, no, our hope is in an alliance with Assyria. That's what we will depend on. Or, they say, we will not mount war horses. War horses, are the, war horses and chariots are the tanks of the ancient world, aren't they? Where do you get war horses from? We have to import them. Israel didn't have a focus on war horses. Where did they get them from? Usually from Egypt. So here we've got both superpowers involved in this verse, right? Assyria on the north, Egypt on the south, and at various times in various ways they're playing one off against the other. That is the idolatry of power because when they trust in Assyria or they trust in war horses from Egypt, they are not trusting in the Lord. Your God is what you trust in, says Luther. He's right. If you trust in Assyria, then Assyria is your God, just as much an idol, or maybe more so, than the calf idol that is set up in Dan and Bethel. You trust in your military might, you're trusting in an idol. <clears throat> now, I think then, if we're going to hear Hosea for our day, we have to think about this question of the idols of power. And we need to ask the question, how does that apply to us as members of Jesus' church? Does it? I'm going to suggest to you four ways that I think it, this is right on the money 
for the church in America today. So, let's talk about the first one. Let's talk about the idol of political power. Now, who are we as a people? That is, what is our line of descent? Well, we come out of a group of churches that were formed in the early part of the 20th century. So this is 100-year-old history. Uh, Some of you know this better than others, but uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a a great conflict in the Protestant churches in America uh, between those who were called theological liberals on the one hand and those who called themselves fundamentalists because they said we want to stay with the fundamental truths of the gospel. It was a big dispute. Uh, The fundamentalists basically uh, got kicked out and they went off and began to start their own churches. Uh, The power was on the side of the the liberal Protestants in the the mainline churches. Presbyterian churches, uh, Methodist, uh, Episcopalian, and so forth. So there was this big conflict. The fundamentalists, uh, in one sense, lost it initially. Uh, They lost buildings. uh, They lost money and so forth. They went off and started their own churches, their own organizations. Uh, They were on the margins, right? Right? And if you're on the margins, what's true about you? Well, if you're on your margins, you don't have power. The other guys had the power. Our church used to be part of a group of churches called the Independent Fundamentalist Churches of America. You hear the word fundamentalist? Those are our roots. The roots are deep in this soil of the people who were dispossessed, who were marginalized, who did not have power. Now what happened was, uh, in the second part of, and actually those, those churches ended up doing pretty well. They grew a lot, in part because they didn't have power, in part because they really tried to focus on the gospel. So those churches grew. And an interesting thing happened then in the second part of the 20th century. They began to grow in their cultural impact in a variety of ways. Billy Graham ended up becoming friend and advisor to a whole series of American presidents. Remember that? He, was, uh, he played golf. He was good friends with Richard Nixon. And then various... Uh, Uh, Presidents after that, he was the advisor. In 1973, the Supreme Court brought its decision, Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in the United States. Uh, It was a great shock to many people, uh, including many Christians. Uh, We didn't see it coming. Uh, it, It shook us to realize how much the culture was drifting in bad directions. And so Christians began to organize. A whole group of uh, organizations sprung up that were focused on political activism. And, uh, and that took place, well, right up to the present time. 
Do you remember uh, 1980? Who got elected? Ronnie Reagan, right? Time magazine called 1980 the year of the evangelical. Why was that? Well, in part, it was because evangelicals were seen as having a significant role in electing Reagan to the presidency. Now, you see what's growing there? What's growing is political clout. And in the decades since then, uh, organizations have continued to proliferate in the evangelical and fundamentalist world. Politically active, not only that, but many of them politically active. They've raised enormous amounts of money, and uh, evangelicals were recognized as playing a a very significant role in the election of President Trump uh, four years ago. Now, uh, here's the problem, friends. Is it wrong to be active politically? No, I'm not trying to make that suggestion. But what I am going to push with you to think about is that success in political activism very easily slips into idolatry. Because we begin to think that strength belongs to us rather than to the Lord. Isn't that what happened in Israel? They started negotiating with Assyria, with Egypt. They had some success in it for a period of time, even though ultimately Assyria came down and squashed them. But they saw that as an effective way to establish the security of their nation. But God says it's idolatry. And I think that many evangelicals and fundamentalists have slipped into an idolatrous understanding of the role and power of politics. Right before the election, a major influential evangelical preacher said this, by our vote we choose our leaders. Our leaders choose the policies we live under, and those policies determine, hear that? Determine the moral and spiritual direction of our country. By contrast, here's here's some words from Charles Colson, former presidential advisor to Nixon, went to prison through the Watergate controversy, and actually came to Christ, and, and wrote some significant stuff after that. Here's what Colson says about government. While government has a worthy task to perform and depends for its success on citizens of character, it can do little to create them. By upholding a standard of justice and enforcing the rule of law, the state does provide a limited form of moral education. But humanity's deepest motivations, its strongest virtues, and blackest vices escape the control of government, any government. Now, you sense the contrast between those two positions? The one says the policies of 
political leaders determine the moral and spiritual direction of our country. A lot of Christians voted with that assumption. And I think that's idolatry. I think it's idolatry because it attributes to government what government does not have the power to accomplish. A second idol of power. Celebrity status. Well, here's one of Hollywood's present so-called power couples, huh? George and Amal Clooney. Celebrity, high visibility, personal charisma, attraction. What does celebrity confer on people? It confers power. That's that's why, that's why celebrities can talk about all kinds of things that they have no expertise on and no real knowledge, and many, many people follow them or listen to them. Why is that? Because there's a power in celebrity. And we have probably all felt it. We want to identify with celebrity people. We want to share their views and their experiences. Uh, So there it is. And here, as in the area of politics, what happens in the broader world slips into the church. And the church becomes idolatrous in its worship of celebrity. Have we done this? Absolutely, we have done this. We have created a whole range of Christian celebrities. And they have enormous power. Sometimes for good, and sometimes for evil. But we find it hard to differentiate the difference uh, because we have given them Uh, a kind of worship that kills our discernment. The most, uh, I guess probably the most recent failure of uh, a celebrity that has uh, shocked a lot of people, you've probably seen it in the news in the last, uh, even in the last week, is the... uh, is the story about Carl Lentz at Hillsong Church in Manhattan. Mega church, uh, celebrity pastor, and it came out a week or two ago that he's been in a five-month affair with a, uh, ironically, a, a Palestinian Muslim woman that he met in the park. And uh, this, of course, is devastating to the whole church. It's devastating, or should be devastating in some ways, to the entire American church that we've come to this place. I uh, listened to a a bit of an interview that the woman he had the affair with gave on ABC News last week. 
And she was so on target with this. Here's what she said. When you give somebody so much power, they become God to people. People forgot the concept of religion and beliefs, and people look at Carl like he's God. She can, she can see that. Can we see the danger of celebrity? I think the American church has been deeply, deeply hurt by the cultivation of celebrity. Well, that goes right into another idol of power, uh, the problem of sexual abuse. The last years have been uh, immensely discouraging to me because of story after story about sexual abuse, particularly about clergy abuse. Sexual abuse is about power. It's about power of strong individuals abusing those who are weaker. Sexual abuse became a big issue surfacing how long ago? Maybe 10 years ago already in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, scandal of priests abusing people sexually. And when that first surfaced, a lot of fundamentalists and evangelicals said, tisk tisk tisk. I mean, after all, what would we expect with an unmarried priesthood? But there were people at that time already who were heavily involved in counseling sexual abuse victims who said there is a lurking problem in the evangelical and fundamentalist church that is just beginning to surface. And you know what? They were right. And so we've got story after story. There is, I would, I would say there's... There's not a week that goes by that some new story does not surface in this area within the American fundamentalist and evangelical church. What is it about? Is it about sexual desire? Well, yeah, it's about that, but it's also about power, friends. It's about people who have been given a place of power or taken a place of power and have used it in an abusive way. I mean, the, the case of Carl Lentz, the celebrity pastor who gets involved in a five-month affair. You see how power leads to abuse. And then a fourth one. Let's think about the financial scandals that uh, continue to hit the evangelical world. Power leads us easily to places of financial abuse. Powerful persons can get access to money, and of course, money itself gives access to more power, so it's kind of a cyclical thing. But... Uh, 
we've got lots of financial problems within the house, right? The, the, the broad house of the American church. Uh, money being used in ways that are inappropriate. Or, just think about this. How about the salaries that people are pulling down in uh, churches and Christian nonprofits? Not all of them. I mean, I, I'm painting with a broad brush, friends. I understand that. And there's lots of exceptions, a lot of good exceptions. But there are a lot of situations that are scandalous in regard to money. Little word of advice. Some of you give to various organizations. That's fine. Know where your money is going and what it's doing. Know what the CEOs are being paid of the organizations you give to. And if you can't find that out, recognize that that in itself is a flag. We, we have leaders of nonprofits that are getting paid more than a million dollars a year. What about even a half million dollars a year? Even a half million dollars a year salary. Am I, am I out of touch, or is, is there a scandalous aspect to that? To raise money from people like you and me for whatever cause and pay people at that level. Where are we, friends? How have we gotten here other than we have begun a process or we're in a process of idolizing power in its various forms. We need, as did the people in Hosea's day, to return to the Lord. And in returning to the Lord, we need to abjure the idols of power. We need to come back to what the prophet Zechariah says so clearly, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. See, the advantage that a hundred years ago the old fundamentalists had over us is that they were pushed to the margins. <laughs> they didn't have power, and because they didn't have power, they had to seek power where it was really found. They had to trust God. And they had to seek to do his will in dependence on his spirit. And I'm not suggesting that nobody ever does that today. But I think we have a nationwide crisis in our churches. And it's not going to be solved until we recognize the problem and in repentance we come back and say, Oh God, we need your spirit. We want your spirit. We renounce Assyria. We renounce war horses. We renounce the idols of political power, celebrity status, financial power. We renounce that. We want to live in your power, with your strengths. Well, what's the final word 
that Hosea gives us. Because I know that's a heavy word. So what's the final word? The final word from the Lord to the people of Israel, and I think to us as well, is one of encouragement and hope. I'm very taken by verse 8 in this chapter, where the Lord says, I used to read this and think this is what what Israel was going to say in their repentance, that they were going to say, what more have I to do with idols? But as I read that now, I think that's, that's the Lord speaking. At the end of this book, after all of this heavy confrontation over idolatry, at the end of the book, the Lord says, Ephraim, what more do I have to do with idols? In other words, I think he's saying, we've talked enough about this. Let's get on to something better. You come back to me, and then what I want to talk about is that blessing that I have in store for you if you will return. Verse 7, he says, they will flourish. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. Uh, Flourishing, that's very close to this uh, Old Testament word we've looked at before, the word shalom. The word which we translate peace, but which has a broader meaning than that. It it is peace, it's safety, it's health, it's harmony with God and others, it's well-being, completeness. That's flourishing, right? And God promises that not only will Israel flourish when they return to him, but Others will flourish in Israel's shade. In other words, here at the close of this book, there is an amazing promise that God gives that one day when Israel comes to its senses, that he will not only bless them, but through them he will bless the world. I mean, this, this is the promise then that Paul develops so beautifully in Romans 9 to 11, where he says the, that the abandonment of Israel is a temporary thing, that God is going to use that uh, to, to bring many Gentiles to himself. And in the end, all of Israel is going to be saved. I mean, I, I think Paul is looking back at Hosea among other books in the Old Testament. And this is Paul's vision of the good news. But it's already here. The final word to Israel is not the word of judgment. It's the word of blessing and grace because God loves his people. And he longs so much that they would leave the idolatrous things that cannot fulfill the promises that they think are there. Right? Assyria is going to disappoint them. Assyria is going to be actually the nation that comes and destroys Israel. Egypt will not be able to save them. And once they learn that, really learn that, God will return in blessing to his people in a way that I think we still haven't seen, but a way that the Bible holds out as a promise to Israel but also a promise to us that as we increasingly turn away from the idols that we create and trust in the Lord, uh, we will know his power, we will know his grace, we will know his blessing and his love.
So where do we go from here? I think we need to take a hard look at ourselves as individuals, but as a church, as the American church, and confess that we've created our own idols. We need to confess our weakness and ask for the true power that the Spirit of God brings. And then, friends, as we pray, we need to pray for revival to come to the church in America. I think we've been very focused on the problems in the broader culture, right? And we've been politically active and we've pushed for our views, but I think we need to start closer to home. I think we need to start in the church and with the church and with our own hearts. Remember what Peter says? He says, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We're concerned that America may fall under the judgment of God. Rightly so. But what about the church, friends? Is the present weakness of the American church because we have embraced idolatry in a variety of forms? So we need to turn back to the Lord and turn back with the assurance that as we do so, the Lord loves his people and he's waiting for us to return to him. So let's pray for that, for our church and for the church in America. And let's pray together now. Will you join me? Lord, when we confront the, uh, the challenge of a book like Hosea, we're, uh, we're hearing things we, we don't really want to hear. We're tempted to turn away. We're tempted to dismiss these questions as something that pertained to people long ago and far away. And as we do that, Lord, we risk not hearing from you. Missing what your spirit would want to teach us. We risk blunting the, the word of God, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we don't like the sword. We don't like its cutting power. Will you grant us, God, the grace of repentance? The grace to turn back to you, to acknowledge that power is yours, and that any time we divorce power from you, it becomes idolatrous, it becomes dangerous, it becomes self-destructive. And God, as a church, we've become self-destructive. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us. Pour out your grace upon us. 
that we might be a people who walk in your ways and, and like this promise to Israel we just looked at, Lord, the promise that many would dwell in Israel's shade and flourish there. Lord, we desire that the church in America, that, that our church here in Satterton might be a place of shade and rest for many. But we acknowledge that, Lord, you've got to do some work in us if that's to happen. This morning we open ourselves to you. We ask you to come to us, to change us and transform us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.